I suppose uh, all of us from time to time get mildly depressed or bummed out, as we say. We have uh, blue Mondays and off days and uh, seem to take those as a matter of course. Others have more acute problems with uh, depression, at least their mood swings are more extreme. And there are some who are chronically depressive. I have a friend who has suffered off and on with long-term bouts of depression. And uh, if that's uh, your case this morning and you're struggling, then there's a word of hope from you, uh, for you from Scripture. And it's found in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings in the story of Elijah. There are a number of, of uh, characters that we respect highly in the Old and New Testament who struggle with depression. Moses was one, another was Peter, and even our Lord had uh, his turn at it when he faced the cross. But uh, perhaps the most poignant example is that of Elijah here in chapter 19. Elijah was a 9th century B.C. prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He prophesied during the time of Ahab, wicked Ahab. This was one of uh, Israel's darkest hours. Ahab had married uh, Jezebel, who was a uh, princess from Phoenicia. Uh, and when she moved to Israel, she brought all of her bales with her. There were a number of them. And the Asherah. Uh, Asherah was one of Baal's consorts, female consorts, and uh, brought along all of her priests and false prophets, and they introduced the worship of Baal into the northern kingdom. Baal worship actually became the uh, state religion. And it was during that time that God raised up Elijah, this rugged old prophet, and he was the man who set in motion the events that eventually eradicated Baal worship from uh, from Israel. Now the immediate context of chapter 19 is chapter 18, that uh, well-known story of uh, Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. I'm sure all of you know the story, it's a sort of classic shootout, the uh, good guy against the bad guys, and uh, the good guy outnumbered 450 to 1, as Elijah puts it. I, only I, am left, and there are 400 prophets of Baal. But uh, as you know, as the contest went on, as they built their altars and prayed to their gods to uh, send fire from heaven, the Baal prophets were unsuccessful. They danced around their uh, sacrifice, and they cut themselves as their habit was, and they prayed, but nothing happened. The Baals didn't respond. And then Elijah built his altar and laid his sacrifice and poured uh, five gallons or so of water over the sacrifice and uh, called upon the Lord to answer. And uh, there was a great uh, crash of thunder and lightning fell out of the sky and the sacrifice was, ex was consumed and even the water was, uh, was evaporated out of the uh, little channel that Elijah had dug around his, uh, his altar. So it was an overwhelming victory. The 450 Baal prophets were taken down to the river Kishon and they were slain there. And then Elijah, exhilarated by his success, outran Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Ahab uh, got in his chariot and he went back to Jezreel where his palace was and Ahab was so, uh, or Elijah was so adrenalized by this 
overwhelming victory that he ran, outran Ahab all the way back to Jezreel. Quite a run, about 20 miles or so. But uh, it was an overwhelming excess. He was, he, he was exhilarated. He was, he was excited. As Lucy says to Charlie Brown, the only thing better than winning is winning big. And uh, Elijah won big. And as he, he, as he was making his way back to Jezreel, he was thinking about uh, what the future held for him and for Israel. And he envisioned, envisioned Bible studies in uh, Samaria and prayer breakfast with uh, King Ahab in his cabinet and growth groups all over the northern kingdom and campus crusade and intervarsity and young life operating on the campuses. And he was going to be a part of this great uh, renewal in the northern kingdom. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid. Or as you see in the margin, there's an alternate reading, and he saw and arose and ran for his life. Now what he what he did was see things in a different light. Jezebel uh, was someone to be feared. He knew that she wore the royal pants in the family, and it didn't really matter what Ahab believed. Jezebel was going to have her way. She was, as I said, a Sidonian princess. She was used to royal prerogatives and uh, she expected to have things just as she wanted them. Her father was a man by the name of Ethbaal who was the king of the Phoenicians. He's quite well known in secular history as well as biblical history. He murdered his own brother to come to the throne. And Jezebel herself we know was a cunning, vicious, cruel woman. So uh, Elijah certainly had reason to uh, fear and he turned on his heels and headed for the desert and ran to Beersheba. That's about 70 to 80 miles from Jezreel. So he was really picking him up and laying him down. And uh, he left his servant there. Apparently the young man gave out at that point. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. I suspect we all can identify with Elijah. We've been there, and we've experienced the same feelings of despair and and self-pity, and we've probably said to the Lord, I've had enough. This is it. I'm up to here. No more. I can't take anymore. And we perhaps perhaps have even uh, held the same suicidal thoughts that uh, Elijah did. He feels that his life is worthless. He has nothing to live for. Professionals tell us that there are a number of causes for depression. And one is that it often is based in some physical problem. It may be uh, some uh, glandular disorder. And in that case, perhaps a doctor can uh, be of help. Or it may simply be that uh, we're fatigued. We're tired. Or we've had an inadequate diet. And that certainly was true of Elijah. He had had this uh, sustained uh, battle, a uh, mortal conflict with the uh, pr- uh, priests of Baal. 
and uh, he had forgone meals and sleep, and he had been running for a hundred miles, and he was tuckered out. He was just tired and hungry. And so the Lord, wonderful counselor that he is, arranged for a period of R&R. &R. And in verse 5 we read that Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of wine, of a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is an alternate name for Mount Sinai at the uh, southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, on the strength of this uh, one meal, which it took him two uh, sittings to eat, he traveled forty days and forty nights through the desert to Mount Sinai. That was uh, real health food. Um, it occurs to me that sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is go to bed. Uh, I, uh, there are many times in my life when I uh, uh, get discouraged and things that normally challenge me seem overwhelming. And I think I'm beginning to see that very often my mental attitude and emotional attitude is determined by my uh, diet and how much sleep I'm getting. And at times like that, the, for myself, the worst thing I can do is try to read scripture and try to work problems out and try to pray. What I need to do is hit the sack, right, go take a nap, or sleep in, or uh, eat adequately. And this, of course, is what the Lord is doing for Elijah. Now, Elijah has a greater problem than merely physical. There are other predisposing factors. There are other things that, that trigger his depression. But before the Lord can work on the deeper root, he has to give Elijah time to rest and recuperate. And then he can deal with some of the root causes for his depression. Now you'll notice that uh, Elijah, or that Jezebel, is not uh, put to death at this point. God uh, permits the circumstances that cause Elijah's despair to remain. He's going to allow the circumstance to remain because he wants to teach Elijah something about these uh, deeper causes for his depression. And verse 9, we read that uh, Elijah came to the cave, and uh, there is an article here which suggests it's a particular cave, and uh, most people believe that this is the cave where Moses received the great revelation of God at Mount Sinai. This would have uh, that sort of association in Elijah's mind. He would think of the time when the Lord instructed Moses. And this is what the Lord is going to do for Elijah. He wants to teach him. He wants to show him how things really are. Because what Elijah needs is to see reality, truth. And it's the word that describes things as they really are. Now the first thing the Lord does is ask a question. We're told that he lodged in the cave, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he's not scolding him. He's simply raising the question. What are you doing here? Why aren't you in the thick of things? Why aren't you back in Jezreel? 
where uh, the action is taking place. And uh, by simply raising that question, he's introducing a note of hope, I think, into Elijah's mind, because uh, the conclusion Elijah might draw is that he doesn't need to be here. He can be some other place. It reminds me of a question that, uh, or a comment that Howard Hendricks made once to a friend. He asked uh, this man how he was doing, and the man said, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. And how I said, under the circumstances, what are you doing under there? And that's basically the question that, that the Lord is asking Elijah. What are you doing here, under the pile? And Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words... Elijah thinks that God is not holding up his end of the deal. He was zealous for the Lord. He had done what God had called him to do, and God had not been faithful to his promises. Things had not worked out the way Elijah expected. Now again, professionals will tell us that there are many causes for, um, for depression. Guilt can cause depression. If we don't live up to our own expectations, we get disappointed with ourselves, and we get down on ourselves, and depressed. Um, loss of opportunity, a job, status, health, rejection, threat, separation from someone we love by death or divorce, all of those things can trigger a depression. But it seems to me that the root cause in every case is unrealistic expectation about life. We just have not learned to see life as it really is. And that's the way Elijah is thinking. He expected a lightning bolt to flash out of the sky and destroy Jezebel. And the renewal would go on. But that's not necessarily the way God works. His ways are mysterious. And uh, therefore, Elijah's thinking is totally unrealistic. And he's depressed. And he doesn't want to get out of his depressed state. He rather likes it. A lot of people remain depressed simply because they uh, get a lot of attention when they're depressed. And uh, they may suggest that if we don't give them a lot of sympathy then they'll get worse, and they might even do something drastic, which is uh, a sort of psychological blackmail when you think about it. But what the Lord wants Elijah to see is that he can be delivered if he wants to be, and he's going to show him the route to recovery. Now, what he does is encourage Elijah to come out of his uh, cave and uh, see what God is going to do. Verse 11, he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire... A sound, of, uh, a sound of gentle blowing. You see, Elijah thought 
that uh, God would would act on his behalf as he did on Mount Carmel with uh, an act of judgment on Jezebel and all of the uh, priests of Baal that that uh, remained. But he didn't. Because God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes God works in, in dramatic ways, but more often than not, he works in quiet, mysterious, unperceived ways. But the point is, he's at work. We may not always see it, but he's, he's at work. And uh, he's using us in order to bring about salvation wherever we go. He delivers, but we don't always see that deliverance. We like the dramatic, because that's an obvious sign of, of, of God uh, at work. But that's not always the way he operates. This past week I was reading about Vance Havner, whose uh, wife died uh, in a very tragic and untimely way. And uh, out of that experience he wrote a book entitled, Though I Walk Through the Valley. And uh, this is what he says, Whoever thinks he has the ways of God conveniently tabulated, analyzed, and correlated with convenient glib answers to ease every question from aching hearts has not been far in this maze of mystery we call life and death. God has no stereotyped way of doing what he does. He delivered Peter from prison but left John the Baptist in a dungeon to die. At this writing, I never knew less how to explain the ways of providence, but I never had more confidence in my God. I accept whatever he does, however he does it. Now what we know is that God is working for our good. He says so, that's his promise, but we can't dictate the terms nor the time of that deliverance. How he does it and how long he takes to do it is solely his prerogative. And if we don't see that, our, our, our thinking about life is always unrealistic. All we know is that God is good and he's going to do what's right, but he doesn't tell us how he's going to do it or when he's going to do it. And some of us may uh, find life difficult for the short term or for the long term. We may be trampled on by people that uh, are insensitive or uh, hurt by people who love us the, mo the most or maligned by malicious people. Your non-Christian spouse may never come to the Lord. There are no guarantees in Scripture that we will be healthy or wealthy to the end of our days. But there is a guarantee that God is good. And he does what's right. And he will give us the strength to go through anything that we have to face. It doesn't matter what it is. Now that's what the Lord wants to get across to Elijah. His, his expectations were unrealistic. He wanted God to act in power and dramatic, cataclysmic ways. And God says, there are times that I act in that manner. But... More generally, he operates in quiet, mysterious, unforeseen, unpredictable, unannounced ways. But he does work. And as the story goes on, verse 13, It came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats almost verbatim what he said in verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, 
torn down thine altars and killed thy prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away still depressed but the Lord says to him go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived you shall anoint Hazael over Syria and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola you shall anoint as prophet in your place and it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael Jehu shall put to death and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu Elisha shall be put to death yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him Hazael became the successor of the man who was the king of Syria at this time and Hadad and he was used as God's instrument to scourge Ahab and, and Israel Jehu became Ahab's successor Ahab was killed by the Syrians and Jehu uh, subsequent to that became the king and he was the instrument that God used to destroy Jezebel and eradicate Baal worship and Elisha was uh, Elijah's uh, associate and companion and servant throughout the rest of Elijah's ministry now actually Elijah did not anoint Hazael or Jehu he only anointed anointed Elisha but he set in motion all of his other events that resulted in purging Israel from Baal worship he was the instrument that God used you see the point God's saying I'm going to work but I'm not going to work as you expect it will be in another way but I'm going to affect salvation through you. Now you, you start the process in motion by anointing Elijah. And he did. Elijah departed, though he was still depressed. There really isn't much we can do about our emotions. We can't uh, command our emotions, nor can we demand that someone else snap out of a depression. People generally don't. But we can change our way of thinking. It's our it's our false expectations it's our way of thinking that creates our disappointments about life and disappointments result in self-pity and when we wallow in self-pity we always end up uh, depressed so we have to go back to the beginning and start thinking correctly about about life and the way it really is and then the emotions will will come along in time a lot of people when they get depressed just go to bed or they hold up in their room or sit in the corner with a um, sheet over their head and uh, refuse to come out and Elijah, Elijah felt that way to some extent but he was willing to take action not only do we have to change our way of thinking we have to change our way of acting and sometimes the best thing we can do when we're depressed is to start acting to get up and take a shower and uh, fix your face and get dressed and go in the kitchen and start fixing dinner start serving your family stop being sorry for yourself and better yet look for someone who has a need one of the most therapeutic best things one of the best things you can do is to look for someone who has a need and start serving them call up a friend even though emotionally you're still depressed and and start meeting their needs and then in time the depression will lift the feelings of depression will lift 
Now let me summarize. In the first place, we shouldn't be surprised when we become depressed. It happens to all of us. No one is exempt. Even the Lord became discouraged and depressed at times. So it's not sin to be depressed. But we need to recognize that the cause of depression generally is unrealistic expectations. And we just don't understand how God works. We think he always works in dramatic ways. But he doesn't. And therefore we must not be disappointed if our health fails, if our families don't shape up as we expect, if people mistreat us, if they say cruel and harsh things about us. That's life. That's the way it is. And uh, we need to accept that as, as reality. And recognize that despite the hard things in life, God is at work to accomplish his will through us. Not always in obvious ways, sometimes in very quiet, mysterious ways, but unmistakably he's working in order to, to accomplish his will. And what should we do in the meantime, when we're still blue and discouraged? Start acting. Because our wills are not immobilized. We've been set free in the cross. That's what the Lord did for us. We don't have to sit around and uh, succumb to our feelings of self-pity and feel sorry for ourselves. And really, we shouldn't uh, permit others around us to do it. We shouldn't scold, but we ought to be honest with them. We don't have to feel sorry for ourselves. We can begin to serve and minister and reach out to others. And assuming that there are no physical problems that are at the bottom of our depression, in time, the Lord will restore to us the joy of our salvation. Let's pray, shall we? Father, help us increasingly to think realistically about life. Thank you for what we learned from this great prophet, Elijah, who is a man of like passion with us, who shares our weakness and our limitations. Thank you that, uh, that you have also revealed the truth to us. You've told us what's true. And uh, we ask that you would increasingly teach us to believe it. And in those times when we feel that life is unfair, and when you're not fair, help us to remember that, that though life is not fair, you are. And that you are at work to accomplish what you've promised to do. You never fail us. And uh, we ask that you would remind us of these truths in time of need. And thank you that we have every resource in Christ, all the infinite riches of, of our Lord, to act in obedience to what we know is true. And may we, like Elijah, arise and depart from this place. Forgive us, Lord, for those times that we, we feel sorry for ourselves and give way to self-pity and dwell upon our, uh, our woes. Thank you that we can be free and we can reach out to others in need. And thank you that you do, in turn, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Thank you for this practical help from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.